0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Diecast Movie Podcast, where the movies we discuss are decided by the roll of a die. We roll a die to decide the genre, and from that, we pick the movies we're going to discuss. We also do interviews. My name is Steve, so I hope you've been enjoying the show. Um, please leave us feedback at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com, or you can leave us a message on our Facebook page. And please feel free to subscribe to us at whatever podcast podcast catcher you're using so that way you don't miss an episode or you can go to our facebook page and um, like and follow that and then every time a new episode comes out you'll get a notification from that otherwise i hope everybody's having a good day and soon we're going to be going into rosemary's baby before we do that i'm going to play a little promo from a show that I've been enjoying another podcast called the Classic Horrors Club podcast with my buddies Jeff Owens and Rich Chamberlain. Um, hopefully you're listening to them too, so we'll listen to their promo and we'll go right into what Troy and I are going to be discussing with Rosemary's Baby. Hi, I'm Jeff Owens. And I'm Richard Chamberlain. And we
1: want you to join our club, the Classic Horrors Club. Every month, Richard and I host the Classic Horrors Club podcast, where we talk about our favorite subject, horror movies. Some of them are classics. We all go a little mad sometimes. And some definitely aren't. What you see is real. What's done is done, and what I've done is right. It's the work of science. But we love them all the same. We also have special theme months, where we highlight the legendary stars. And we head to the drive-ins of the past every summer for exciting double and triple features. Hi, I'm Chilly Dilly, the personality pickle. And we even have occasional guests. My
0: obsession, and it is truly
1: an obsession, I suppose, of Frankenstein the True Story dates back to when it
0: first aired in two parts on NBC in 1973.
1: So join the fun and listen to the Classic Horrors Club podcast today. Hosted by SoundCloud, we're available wherever fine podcasts are found. And for even more fun, check out the video companion on
0: our YouTube channel.
1: And remember, we sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment.
0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Diecast Movie Podcast, where the genre of the movie is decided by the roll of a die. And this time, the genre we fell on was horror. And I was talking with. Troy Howith And I said, Troy, you have horror. What movie do you want to pick? And he picked Rosemary's Baby. And he did it with literally that much hesitation, you know, maybe two snaps worth. And he was like, let's go for this. And I'm joined today with Troy. We talked, he's been on the show many times. He's written many, many different books, been on so many different commentaries. It's too numerous to mention, but how are you doing today, Troy?
1: Doing Very good. And thank you for having me here to talk about this one.
0: I'm glad you picked it because, as, as you and I were talking just before I hit the record button, it's been since I was a teenager, so it's been almost like four decades since I last saw the movie. And um, I really enjoy coming back to revisit it. So thank you for picking it.
1: Well, uh, yeah, you might say I'm kind of fond of it. I guess we'll, um, we'll, we'll find that out as we're talking about it. So it was a pretty easy choice.
0: And what have you been up to or what's coming out recently that you can talk about? Because I know some things you can't disclose, but do you have anything that's coming out uh, that you can discuss soon?
1: Mm, I can't think of anything uh, commentary-wise that hasn't been announced already or that isn't uh, already available. The um, second Christopher Lee set came out in severance that I'm on. Uh, these commentary tracks with Nathaniel Thompson on Dark Places and Secret of the Red Orchid on that one and um it's been a bunch of other things but nothing nothing has really been announced lately uh just been busy working on some other book projects too
0: awesome awesome and and, uh, readers for listeners that haven't read your books they really should go out there like google search web search troy's name and you'll see a plethora of different works that are out there and I don't think you can go wrong with picking any of them. It just depends what taste you have in movies, you know, because your tastes are all over the place. And um, I think that's just the way to go. And then you can just start working from there. You can start with John Carpenter. You can go to Dario Argento. I mean, you can go to many, many different realms.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for saying so. Um, Yeah, I mean, um, they are what they are. And uh, some people like them. Some people don't. That's just the way it is.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, it's, it's, I know some people get really upset when they, when I, I'm, you and our Facebook friends, and sometimes you'll post something on Facebook with your opinion of a movie and people really, it's amazing how they get so offended by certain things. And it's just, it's just a different opinion. And um, I like it because it adds discussion. And sometimes you, you go to look at the film and it's like, well, I, I can see where he's coming from, from that. And whether I agree with your opinion or not is irrelevant. It's just, I value your opinion, you know, cause it's usually very well informed.
1: Well, I mean, it's, it's one of the things that's kind of uh, souring me more and more. I've been trying to spend less time on it because I've frankly been on it too much. So I try to, I've been trying to back off actually uh, over the past week, you know, decreasing. And um, it was a funny thing, uh, you know, as, as I'm sure you're aware and most people who are interested in uh, genre films will be aware. Rob Zombie has a new film coming out of uh, the Munsters, which. Um, you know, I, I, I preface this by saying I'm not a fan of Rob Zombie and I'm not really a fan of the Munsters. Sorry to say. It's, uh, you know, fine as a kid, but as an adult it doesn't really hold up so good to me. Um, so I shared my thoughts on the trailer, you know, which is uh, just what it's worth. You know, looked at the trailer and thought, oh, that doesn't look very good. Um, and and put that out there. As some people were very, very um, irate. I know there was a lot of dumping going on on it, but what I said really wasn't that. Significantly strong or anything, I wasn't impressed by what I saw. And a guy I've been Facebook friends with for years um, just you know blocked me for doing that, which I thought was uh, you know I mean you, you're uh, not obliged to uh, be friends with anybody, uh, especially on um, social media. Friendships are very sort of shallow anyway, so it's not like a real world friendship when you're dealing with somebody you've known in person. Um, so he's within his rights to do it. I just thought, wow, that's really that's bizarre I mean do you have any I, first of all I didn't even say anything that bad second of all uh, it's it's not worth getting that upset but some people do I, I don't really understand it but uh, that seems to be the thing um, on social media anymore it seems to be the uh, the outrage uh, seems to be uh, outrage porn seems to be the thing
0: yeah, it seems like with every movie that comes out now, it's either the best ever or the worst ever, and there doesn't seem to be the middle ground. Yours was a middle ground approach. Um, I looked at it, I saw the trailer, and I was, the first. there's two trailers. The first trailer, when there was the teaser trailer, I was like, oh, this this is intriguing. You know, this is because I, I like the TV show, unlike yourself, so I'm looking at it like, oh, this would be interesting to see. And, and the second trailer, what looks like it's an origin story leading into where the series would have picked up, and you know yes the budget you can look at it the, the the effects don't look great but then again i've seen a lot of trailers where the effects weren't finished and it with the and the trailer was put out and and now i find that it's going straight to netflix so it's it's not going out into the theaters to to my knowledge so i'm looking at it at a different level um in that comparison so I'm, i'll probably still watch it on netflix but i'm going in with tepidation you know i'm not going in with like this is going to be the greatest thing ever. This is going to be the worst thing ever. I'm going in, am I going to be entertained? It's not going to be the same as the old because I, I don't expect it to be the same as the old. I just expect to be entertained oh. at, at the least. Yeah,
1: that's, that, that should be the approach with any film, honestly. I mean, it's always a bad idea to go into something expecting it to be the greatest thing ever. And it's not really fair to go in expecting it to be the worst thing ever. I mean, trailers are like that. You know, you see the trailer and it's meant to sort of whet your appetite. And, um, if, if I, I look at it as, okay, they're, they're pulling the best bits, you know, all, all the prime juicy chunks are, are being put here uh, to make it look appetizing. And if you can look at it and say, oh, it looks terrible. That's not a good sign. Um, although there have been, um, films that were badly advertised and, uh, you never know. I mean, um, I don't know that I'll ever watch it. I, I'm not really invested one way or another. If it's good, I hope people that hey, you're and saying it anymore. And um, You know, everybody wants to go out for the, the blurb worthy you know, the stir or the people who want to quote on the back to a Blu-ray page. And uh, it, it's usually, it doesn't have much to do with anything other than just uh, trying to stand out from the crowd. So it, usually you'll see it. Something's getting a lot of praise and somebody's coming out to tell with terrible um, or if something is, you know, getting getting dumped on, people come out and oh, you know, say it's terrific. It's fine if it's sincere and if it's serious and if you have the ability to kind of articulate why you feel what you feel. Usually, it's just kind of, you know, it's one extreme or another, and it's, it's you know, it doesn't really say much.
0: Well, I understand where you're coming from, and um, just to let you know, we, you, you kind of broke up in the middle there, but I got, I think we got the general gist of it. Um, you know, which happens with zoom connections, um, for listeners that are listening in that way, you know, it's like, Hey, it's, it's the good part of society. We can get together from a distance away. And the negative part is sometimes the connection gets a little buffered and it is what it is, (laughs) but we're not here to talk about the monsters or Rob zombie. We're here to talk about Rosemary's baby from to me, the greatest year ever, 1968. Because that was the year I was born. So, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit of, um, you know, <laughs> biased to that year. <laughs> but 1960, Rosemary's Baby. And this, this movie has an interesting thing because William Castle wanted them to get the book before the book was released, if I remember reading correctly, and they put the money up. Only, but they wouldn't. They put the thing down. And William Castle could not direct it, but he could produce it. Is that right?
1: Um, I should have double checked this before I came on here. Unfortunately, I ran out of time. I know. I believe the situation was that uh, Castle. It, it, it was before the book came out, as far as I know. Because um, I know that the uh, uh, the material that was presented to Polanski, uh, who ended up being hired to direct the film, was uh, a galley version of the book. That's that's where it's like in manuscript form. It's not the finished bound version. It's the the galley version. It's it's typos and needs to be tidied up and everything. So I think it was before the book had come out, there was a lot of uh, uh, intrigue and enthusiasm about it. Ira Levin had been a very successful novelist for some time. Obviously, uh, A Kiss Before Dying had been made as a film in the 50s, for example. So it was a known quantity and it was a a subject that seemed to have commercial potential. Um, Castle, purchased the rights uh, wanting to make it himself. It was something he, he wanted to um, kind of reinvent himself somewhat uh, into in becoming a more respected kind of a filmmaker, uh, do something that was a little bit slicker, a little bit more mainstream, something that had potential to be accepted. Um, but uh, the, uh, the higher-ups at Paramount, including Robert Evans, who was kind of a boy genius producer during that time, young hotshot producer, uh, you know, the generational shift was, was happening in Hollywood. The the old guys like William Castle were starting to get phased out. The young guys like uh, like Robert Evans were coming in and starting to sort of take over the show. Um, Evans recognized that this was a very good project and that it would be a film that had real commercial potential, but not <laughs> as a William Castle movie. Uh, and he said, you know, Castle, Castle was a perfectly fine director for the type of films that he made. Um, obviously, he was the gimmick King, he was the guy that you know wired the seats for the Singler and uh, wired up you know skeletons come flying out uh, into the audience for the House on Haunted Hill, etc. Um, the castle had kind of gone from this period of making straight horror films into a period of making, frankly, rather juvenile uh, comedy movies. Um, Let's Kill Uncle, Thirteen Ghosts, uh, Thirteen Frightened Girls, things like that. Most of which were pretty terrible. Um, because although Castle himself clearly was a very funny man and, and very, uh, had a very good sense of humor, he, he wasn't good at directing comedies because he tended to make comedies where the actors really kind of go wildly over the top. You know, isn't this funny? Isn't this zany? And it, it becomes really you know, irritating. Uh, the same was true also of the film he did uh, in collaboration with Hammer, The Old Dark House, um, which, you know, is another very disappointing film. So Castle had his finger on the pulse as far as this particular project was concerned, was very eager to make it and was extremely upset uh, when it became clear that Paramount wasn't going. they would keep him on as a producer. They would make sure that his name was large on the poster or William Castle production, et cetera, but he was not going to be allowed to direct.
0: It. And it'd be interesting in an alternate universe to see what would have happened if he would have directed it, what would have come of it. But to be honest, I think, having watched the film recently again, it ended up in the right hands with the right director who rewrote this, who wrote the screen probably for it and really made it his own, but following really a lot from the book, lifting straight from the book to it. Cause when you realize it's right there for you, let's just take it and put it in there. And his vision, I mean, I, I, it was just, it's one of those horror films that I've really enjoyed because I enjoy a psychological horror film. I don't, I'm not the one that always wants gore and grime and all that stuff. And this one has none of that really, you know, I mean, there's, there's a couple there's like one scene where there is some gore that I can recall off the top, but really it's not, that's not like to to scare anybody or whatever like that. It's just the buildup of the psychological drama. And, um, and the music and the the cinematography, it was just, it was just wonderful experience.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if Castle had directed it, we can, we can say two things. a, he probably would have shown the baby and B, he probably would have had a gimmick at the end where you tried to guess the baby's sex or something like that. He'd have cards out for people to guess. Is it a boy or a girl? Is it Adrian or is it Susan? Um, yeah, I mean, um, so uh, of course, from Lansky, the director and who wrote the script as well, um, had been Robert Evans' choice. Robert Evans is kind of the VIP on this project in the sense that he's the one who recognized that this was better than a B-horror film, that this was something that had a crossover potential. You could make this as a real, you know, quote-unquote, real movie, as opposed to the little grindhouse thing. And Evans had seen Polanski's earlier films, Knife in the Water, Repulsion, *Cold de sac and The Fearless Vampire Killers*, and recognizing him a real talent. Now, Polanski had actually made the cover of uh, Time magazine uh, with Knife in the Water when it came out. Um, there was this big spike of interest in foreign films and so forth, and uh, Knife in the Water ended up getting on the cover of, uh, of Time magazine in 1962. It was a very big deal. Um, and then going over to England and making, um, you know, really... It, some projects to places like Hammer, for example. Hammer turned him down. They didn't know who he was. They didn't care. Um, but he ended up working for Tony Tenser, the guy who went on to create uh, Tygon productions. So they were responsible for things like Woodcrinder General and Blood on Satan's Law and things like that. And, you know, doing a low-budget horror film, Repulsion, which ended up being not only commercially successful, but very, you know, critically acclaimed as well. So Evans was well aware that Polanski was a man of, of great talent and great taste and he could really make this thing come to life so it was a great choice uh, on that level polanski for his part was you know this was obviously his first hollywood production um interestingly his previous film, not of the vampire killers i gather from a funding point of view was an american film it was it was funded through american money but it was shot in europe um it was shot primarily with a british cast crew um You know, Karen Tate, of course, is in it. She's an American name for the film. But, uh, you know, obviously uh, pretty much everybody else is either British or uh, Irish so forth. Um, But this is his first Hollywood film. And it's also the first time he's adapted a book. And he later said he didn't know that he was allowed to change it. He, He was kind of under the impression, we're handing you this, so you've got to translate it directly, which is what he did. Which is why if you read the book, um, you know, it is identical uh, in terms of the story, uh, the characters, even the dialogue. Um, What Polanski brought to it was his own very particular and peculiar sensibility, uh, his kind of, uh, you know, offbeat way of looking at things and this kind of dark humor that's in the book. But I think that Polanski emphasizes even more. I mean, it's a movie that's genuinely creepy, but it's also... Genuinely funny at times, too. It's got this sort of dark comedy thing going on. So um, he maintained that the reason it was so faithful was because he didn't know he could change it. But he would continue doing that, you know, subsequently with things like Macbeth, for example, um, pretty faithful to the play, although he changed the ending uh, in an interesting way. Uh, Subsequent films like The Tenant and so forth, you know, Tesh, Oliver Twist, generally pretty faithful to the source material, um, which. You know, indicates a respect for the material. And it makes sense on the level of if I like this book or this play or this story well enough to want to bring it to the screen, I don't really need to change it arbitrarily. So it is very faithful to the book. Um, but as a script, I mean, it's also it's a model, absolute model of construction. And he said that uh, when he submitted his first draft to uh, Evans and Castle, um, they said it's, it's really very good. The problem is it's far too long. So he said he had to go back and edit it and and shorten it and he found that to be more difficult in terms of you know again the structure was so specific and everything was there for a reason so it was difficult you couldn't just pull out pages you had to go back and find a way to make it flow so there's a lot of stuff that um was originally intended to be there that's not there for that reason um you know and, and some scenes that were shot that he ended up abandoning for one reason But that's another indication of being a kind of A level versus how uh, to have this kind of lead uh, of over power in which the first out basically is all filled up.
0: Troy, you broke up right after you said um um for what like when you are talking about him when he's adapting and said for one reason. What I'm gonna do is I think our connection might begin slow. I'm going to put us off video. So we're just doing the audio and maybe that'll help lift yeah. the connection. All right. <clears throat> okay. So, um, if you can go back to where you were talking about when he was adapting it, you talked about Macbeth and the, um, and how he was staying true to, the source changed certain things around. You talked about some of the other ones and then you got to where he had to cut when, when he was trying to cut the um, material. Yeah. He,
1: he submitted, he submitted the original script, uh, his first draft to Evans and Castle, and they thought it was very good. Uh, they they liked it a lot, but they said, you know, the problem is it's far too long. So he had to go back and change it uh, and, and uh, kind of compress it a little bit because, you know, as it stands, the movie's two hours and 16 minutes long, which is rather long for a horror film, but it's not that the movie's too long. It's not at all. It could have been even longer. Um, but horror films typically, you know, it's the old Roger Corman thing. It, it should be, it should be any longer than an hour and a half. The average camera movie wraps up in an hour and a half and so forth. So that's another indication that this was a, uh, you know, a, a longer, more leisurely type of film. Um, but, you know, because he really, understood the structure and the characters and everything else, he was determined, you know, you couldn't just rip pages out arbitrarily. You had to pay attention to the overall structure. So it took a while for him to kind of get it into shape the way it needed to be, you know, it, within a workable framework so that the movie wouldn't be too long. As it is, there were scenes that were intended to be shot that didn't get shot, scenes that he started that got abandoned for one reason or another. There was a se- there was a sequence involving Joan Crawford, for example, that uh, uh, they did start shooting um, that's not in the film. Um, you know, that fell apart for a variety of reasons. Um, but, you know, essentially this was, uh, this, this is a, a movie that uh, spends a good hour with buildup before things start to get kind of creepy and sinister. And,
0: and, and that's what I love about films is when they take the time to build everything up and establish the characters, the supporting characters, the location, in this case, is very important. And, and then you're so invested into it that when the things start to go awry, so to speak, um, it's, you're, you're really just pulled in even more. And I, and it doesn't happen. It happens with some films nowadays still, but I mean, even back then, it doesn't always happen with every film, you know, not every director and screenwriter is capable of getting you to care about everybody in that first part of the film and then stay with them all the way through that, the, um, whatever the journey is going to be.
1: Well, he's doing something, he's kind of picking up on something that Hitchcock had kind of started with Psycho, which is taking horror out of uh, creepy gothic settings and putting it into really banal locations. Hitchcock kind of had his take and ate it, too, by setting it in recognizably normal places, you know, bathrooms, bedrooms, offices, you know, stores, places that we all recognize. But it still has the creepy house up on the hill that looks kind of like a gothic castle. It's still got that going. Uh Rosemary's Baby um, takes it even further by making it, you know, very, very banal. Although here again too, the uh the use of the uh Dakota the Dakota, the uh famous New York building uh apartment building, which Plansky was not familiar with at that time. He hadn't really been in America prior to this. Uh he this is his first time working here. So he's turned on to the Dakota and realizes, oh, yeah, this is the absolutely perfect place. Place, incidentally, that Boris Karloff was living, uh, I believe. uh, I don't know if he was still living there at that time, but he did live there for a period of time. And that's the same place later that uh, John Lennon was shot outside of. So it's a place with a storied history, which they even talk about in the movie. They talk about the various different things uh, that have have happened there. Um, So... Uh, you know, the, the, the location was perfectly chosen. It does have that kind of creepy gothic flavor to it. But I think even more so than Psycho, this is a horror film that takes place in a very recognizably real world with real people.
0: Exactly. And I think that those are the films I love the most because it could, you feel like it can happen to you or people you know because of the situation <clears throat> and the way it's all set up. And I think for me... That's the best type of thriller, uh, or movie. It's like with Die Hard, you know, to- totally different genre. But you with with John McClane, you feel like he could be the everyman. You know, you, you that could happen. That's happening to him. He's not like some Arnold Schwarzenegger huge guy. He just looks like the average person going through that situation. And I think that's why that movie that did so well and holds up so well because people can actually pictured themselves being in that kind of situation you know what you know when they're dreaming or whatever the same thing with rosemary's baby
1: yeah no definitely and i think uh i mean it's it's there in the book obviously it's something that uh you know ira levin was was very much responsible for in terms of creating the story and so forth but it was this again sort of shifting things away from the traditional gothic fairy tale kind of approach to horror films you know where it's usually some evil character living in a, a uh, an imposing castle or, or something or other on, on, on the hill, um, you know, in a kind of vaguely defined middle European country that, that people can't really relate to. It's a fairy tale. I mean, Polanski had done uh, precisely that movie right before Fearless Vampire Killers, which was his uh, uh, homage to and uh, parody of, of Hammer. You know, he said that he really liked Hammer films and enjoyed going to see them. But he noticed that whenever he would go to see them in Paris, that the audience just meant to laugh at them. And he said, well, wouldn't it be nice if we could make a film like this where people can laugh with it instead of at it? So that's why he approached that the way he did. So that's in a very fairy tale kind of atmosphere uh, type of film. It's very pinterly, widescreen, uh, very colorful, very uh, you know, richly atmospheric. Whereas Rosemary's Baby takes things to a, uh, a somewhat grittier kind of alternative where it's, again, recognizable, um, you know, New York locations, uh, the types of places that are accessible to most people. I mean, Rosemary and Guy at the start of the story are not affluent at all. The whole point is that he's a struggling actor. So, uh, you know, they're able to get into this apartment. Uh, it, it's sort of indicated through some kind of grandfathering, uh, you know, with, with the uh, with the rent, that they're not allowed to raise it any higher than it is. Um, so they're able to get into this really nice place that seems very appealing to them and has uh, great potential for them to be a place to start a family. Um, but you know, it's not something that's so lavish and so imposing that the average person in the audience could say, well, I, I can't even relate to that. So everything in the movie is, is very relatable on that level.
0: Oh, exactly. And, and the way to introduce the, to me, one of the main characters, like I said, is the the house, the building, the apartment complex, with Elijah Cook Jr., Mister Nichols, Nicholas, mm-hmm. taking them through the whole thing and showing them the stuff, and to see their and to see Rosemary's and Guy's reaction to it. It's it, it, it sets up so you know you understand the dynamics, where everything is, why things can happen, for what they will later on, and establishes so mm-hmm. much in that five minutes or so. And it's just um, it, it's just. Filmmakers nowadays don't take that time to establish everything visually. So sometimes they'll do it with exposition, which is fine. But when you're, watch, when you're, when you're watching cinema, you want to be able to see it. And that way you have, because that's the whole point of it. And I think this one does that both. It does it really well because now you have everything placed. So now you know the whole set, the scene, and everything gets utilized eventually down the road, you know, as the movie goes through. Especially at the, you know, the climatic scenes and that kind of stuff.
1: Oh yeah, I mean, there's the whole business with the uh, the closet that's been obscured by the by the um, you know, the big uh, bureau uh that's, that's placed right in front of it. And so, Guy helps uh, Nicholas to uh, move it and and open the door. And it's just, it just seems sort of strange, you know? Why would she board up her vacuum cleaner and the towels and everything else? Just, ah, maybe she was going to see now after all. Um, you know, it, it's all, it's, it seems like throwaway stuff that doesn't seem very important. There's a little wonderful moment where they first go in and they're looking at the spice Guard, and then Guy makes a joke about, you know, she's growing marijuana and all that stuff. And it shows Rosemary's point of view and there's a piece of paper that has uh, written, um, you know, I can no longer associate myself and that, that's that it. And we see that and it's like, well, what's that about? It all kind of connects later on. I mean, it's a movie that all the details are kind of laid out like little puzzle pieces. And by the time you get to the end, you may not put it all together the first time. I mean, there are a lot of things in that film that I never really quite connected uh, until multiple viewings later. It takes a while because there's all these little subtle details and little visual and sometimes oral things that are layered into the movie um, that don't really become totally significant until after you've seen it a couple of times. Uh, which again, I think is a sign of a great film because it, it pulls you back and look at it over and over again. There's always little things that you can notice and you realize, Oh, okay. I, I understand why this is here. Now this all connects into this later on and so forth, all the stuff with the shelves and the paintings on the cast of that walls and all these things, they all sort of pay off, but it does, I think calls for a certain degree of patience that I don't know um, if, uh, the average audience these days would be as patient as that. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, we're kind of used to things being uh, thrown at us at a much quicker pace and at a much faster clip. So I don't know how that would play nowadays, but I think it's one of the great strengths of the film.
0: Oh, I agree on both counts. It's one of those great strengths <laughs> of the film. Also, a lot of audiences, a lot of movies now, they spoon-feed everybody the information and don't leave as much for you to intuit you know, and, and figure uh-huh. out on your own. And I think the strengths of a great movie is when you can rewatch it and you learn something different about it, or you're focusing on a different actor. Um, I use 12 angry mm-hmm. men as an example. Cause I watch that film every couple of years. And every time I watch it, yeah. it's just a new layer, something I missed before and, and things like that. Cause they're all the actors performing in the background. And it's like, you can follow different ones and see different different nuances and rosemary's baby i think is the same way because it's just developed for repeat viewing and then you can get different hidden things from it or or, or explore more in the world and uh, i think yeah. nowadays with the um, dvd digital technology the good part is, is you can like wait a minute I'm and you can go back to that spot you know where when you're watching in the cinema it just keeps on going so there are some advantages to the world we're in now compared to when it came out in 68.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, well, casting-wise, I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot to talk about here as far as the uh, people that uh, Polanski got for this film because it's a, it's a phenomenal cast. Um, the two leads are not who originally were intended. Um, you know, the book, and uh, Polanski, of course, being faithful to the book, um, describes Rosemary as more of a kind of a typical Midwestern, uh, kind of all-American girl-next-door type. And uh, he pictured an actress named Tuesday Wells uh, to play the character of Rosemary. And uh, that didn't work out for one reason or another. And I think it was, uh, I believe it was Robert Evans who was keen on the idea of using Mia Farrow. And uh, Polanski really couldn't see her at first because he thought she seemed so fragile, she's so skinny, she seemed sort of weird and ethereal and so forth. I don't know if she'll fit. Um, but, of course, she was absolutely perfect. Um, Guy was originally intended to be Robert Redford, um, and you can see why. I mean, that, that could have been really interesting. We tend to think of Robert Redford as the kind of, you know, hunky, uh, heartthrob leading man of the late 60s into the 70s and 80s, who, who traditionally plays kind of, you know, upstanding, uh, likable, heroic characters. But let's not forget, early on, he'd played some really shifty characters. He was on at least one episode of Albert Hitchcock Presents, for example, playing a really unpleasant character. Um, so he could have done it. It would have been interesting. Um, but that didn't work out because he was in some legal dispute at the time with Paramount, funnily enough, so that that failed. And it was Polanski who suggested the idea of John Cassavetes. Um, Paramount wasn't particularly crazy about the idea, but they wanted to show Polanski support, so he, he got Cassavetti, which funnily enough, ended up becoming a problem because he and Cassavetes didn't end up working together terribly well because they had very different approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, he gives a performance that I think doesn't get the credit it deserves. Um, I remember reading like Roger Ebert's review, for example, and he loved the film, gave it four stars, and you know raved about almost everybody in the film. But he said Cassavetes was merely competent. Um, I've talked to other people, too, who say, yeah, you can tell he and he did really didn't mess. I don't agree with that. I think he gives an absolutely brilliant performance in the film uh, that doesn't always get the credit that it deserves. So I, I mean, apparently Jack Nicholson wanted to play it, <laughs> which you know could have been interesting. But that was before Nicholson was a star, and you know this is uh, this is prior to all of his big '70s triumphs, including Chinatown. He ended up doing the slanty later on. Um, so I mean, that could have been interesting. But I think Casablanca was the perfect guy for the part. The same way that Mia Farrow turned out to be the perfect part. And all these other actors that Plansky got, these old Hollywood character actors, you know, he had a, a rather unusual way of approaching it, which was simply based on descriptions in the book and his own sketches. He tried to cast people who looked like what he thought they should look like. So he's pulling out a people who haven't done a lot of work and haven't been in big films, um, some of whom hadn't been in big productions in quite some time, like Ruth Gordon, for example. Um, you know, had, had kind of disappeared from films for a lengthy period of time. Uh, casting her and Sidney Blackmer and, uh, Ralph Bellamy and all these other people, it was absolutely perfect. Every single actor in that film is perfectly cast. Down to Angela Dorian, who, uh, it's a funny little in joke in the film, uh, when she and, and Rosemary meet downstairs in the basement doing the laundry, and Rosemary says, um, Oh, I'm sorry, I thought you were Victoria Vetri, uh, the actress, and, and Angela Dorian says, oh, a lot of people make that mistake. Victoria Vetri is Angela Dorian. That, that is her um, her uh, you know, nom de plume. Uh, so she appears in the film, you know, uh, under a different name. Uh, that is indeed uh, the same Victoria Vetri who was in uh, When Dinosaurs Rolled the Earth and, and things like that. So uh, everybody's just perfectly yeah. Oh, yeah. It-
0: I agree with you and Ruth Gordon. You know, as many, she's just uh, I don't know the nosy neighbor trope, Mm -hmm. you know, and all stuff. She plays it so well. You know, she's picking up the mail. She looks at the mail. Oh, you got ads, you know, or whatever it's junk. You know, she's asking how much everything costs, and it's almost like you know, you're trying to be. She's nice, but you're trying to be polite and and all these kind of things. We all know many.
1: Yes, we all know many. (laughs) I mean, I I had a landlord who was like that back in the '90s. Who she looked she looked like her. I remember telling my mom. I said, "Oh my God, it's Minnie." Um, she was the same way. She was nosy. You know, people came over. She was always sort of sniffing around. And we we all know people like that. Um, again, it's that idea of the banality of evil, um, which is you know putting something into a really just sort of humdrum, ordinary environment and uh you know creating this idea these these people could potentially depending on how you read the film because there's ambiguity there um but if we take it on a literal level of okay this is this is what's happening um this is the people you should be afraid of (laughs) you know not the usual kind of you know vincent price and boris Karloff types that we're used to in horror films at that time but you know just the people ordinary people next door
0: oh exactly because they're people that are usually, you know, portraying the villains, so to speak, the best ones are ones that never think of themselves as being the villains or the bad guys. I'm not, and nobody here yeah. that's on the, um, like many and, and, and Roman and all them, none of them picture themselves as being the bad guys. They just picture themselves oh. as doing what they need to do for their religious beliefs and their mm-hmm. faith. And so I think, I think that's the best way of doing it because they're, they're not going to vow, they're not going to think themselves as being wrong
1: right yeah no 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 villain i mean villains don't tend to think of themselves as villains you know the more superficial ones perhaps do Yeah, uh, the, the sort of you know snidely wish fliplash type but you know traditionally people who are doing bad things you know they often don't really think they're doing bad things so that all makes sense but you know the um The idea of what is happening in the film and and how to read the film, uh, it's important to understand that Volansky, as an atheist, uh, was confronted with a little bit of a pickle when he's he's proposed the idea of doing it. First of all, Robert Evans had uh, enticed him by offering him a project called Downhill Racer, which did end up getting made uh, with Robert Redford, funnily enough. Uh, without Polanski directing. Polanski uh, was looking to make uh, the transition to going to Hollywood to make films, And Polanski was a big uh, sort of winter sports aficionado, and and Robert Evans knew that and decided to use Downhill Racer, which is all about skiing, as a a project to entice him and also threw at him Rosemary's Baby and said, well, you know, while you're at it, read this too and let me know what you think. Um, So he ended up obviously picking Rosemary's Baby, which is absolutely the right choice. Um, But he said, you know, as somebody who doesn't believe in God or the devil, how do I make a film about a a woman who is raped by the devil and there's the devil's son? Um, And he said, the only way I knew how to do it was to introduce this ambiguity that you can accept it on face value as this is absolutely happening. She has been impregnated by the devil and these people are all, you know, conspiring against her and blah, blah, blah. Or you can look at it as the woman is out of her mind. Um, so there is, for example, there's a terrific scene in the film where she goes to see Charles Grodin mm-hmm. as uh, the, the obstetrician, Dr. Hill, and um, she is ranting and raving about the witches and about the plot and this and that and everything else. And she sounds completely deranged. I mean, if you look at it objectively, if somebody came in and started talking to you like that, you would say, this woman's lost her mind. Um the interesting thing about the way that scene is played, and what I really love about it, is that once she gets to the end of it, she acknowledges, "I know this all sounds crazy, but I swear by all the saints, it's true." He just very calmly says, "Well, it certainly appears to be so," and and he acts like he's going to help her. Of course, does he doesn't help her? Uh, although he thinks he's helping her, but it does again introduce the idea: is he in on it too? Is he is he part of the the plot, so to speak? So there's all this kind of psychological ambiguity that goes throughout the film. And every time I watch it, I think, you know, you could go either way. It really depends what you bring to it, which I think again, is, is another great strength.
0: Oh, I was the same way with Dr. Hill. You know, when I was watching, I was like, is he part of it? Not part of it? Is he not, you know, cause it's so, there's so many reads of it. And, and Charles Grodin plays it like he's like, Listening to her, it's like, oh, this, 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 this lady's like lost it. I'm just going to say yes to whatever mm-hmm. she says. Let me get her in a nice calm place. Let her relax. And let me just make these phone calls. And, yeah. uh, and I think that's, that's so well done. I mean, you know, it's Charles Grodin. So you expect it to be well done. I mean, pretty much every actor here is very good at what they're doing. And it's just, it's just amazing how it is portrayed and, you feel so sorry for Rosemary. Cause you, you're wondering like, is this really in her mind? It was, did they give her like a drug and then she have a bad trip and is, and it's this, you, you, you can look at it, like you said, many ways. Like, was it, was yeah. it a hallucination? Is it real? Is it that? And even the, yeah. even with the end, you're still wondering like, cause it's still from her POV is, is, yeah. is but maybe, maybe she wakes up from her, her rest and is just, and you know and and freaking out you know it's just there's so many ways that you could still go with the movie even after it ends so you can look at it one way or the other way and i like that i I love films that let you have a discussion with somebody else and you can both be like no this is what happens no this is what happens and you can both be right it's just the way you interpret it
1: yeah i mean. even, even if we assume that the, uh, the neighbors and their friends and so forth really are part of some kind of a cult, well, that, that could be true. And, and even then, Charles Brodenstein, he says that. Well, there are a lot of sickos in this city. Um, so it's quite possible. Um, they could be. But it doesn't necessarily mean they've necessarily conjured up the living devil. <laughs> she is pregnant uh, with the devil's child. So it's crucial that we don't see it. Um, so the end of the film, uh, many, many, many people have sworn that they see the baby at the end of the film, uh, which is not true. It was never filmed. What they see, and I think what confuses some people is you get a subliminal little sort of callback to the, uh, the, the nightmare scene, the rape scene, however you want to call it, uh, where she's impregnated, um, the eyes of, of the, uh, of the devil raping her. Um, you get that little sort of subliminal flash. But that's not meant to be the baby. Um, we get, you know, there's that wonderful moment, one of my favorite moments in the film, uh, which is just pure visual, but is talking about, you know, he has his father's eyes and the camera pans and you see Don Cassifetti standing there with his hands over his eyes. He can't even look. Um it's, also, it's a it's sort of darkly funny uh, in a way, but it's also horrifying at the same time, the idea that he could do this to his wife just to get, get ahead. Um, but again, uh, you know, it's all structured in such a way that we can, uh, on a certain level, you're going to relate to certain things and certain characters and so forth in different ways depending on your situation. And there is part of you that can almost kind of understand his thought process of, well, gee, you know, yeah, she's going to suffer for a little while and think that the child died, but she'll get over it, and we're going to have so much, and everything's going to be great. You can almost kind of understand that. It is kind of a parody of the kind of the American dream. You know, the the ultimate sign of success is to have a big bank account and a big house and so forth, and, and he wants to have that, um, you know, notionally for her as well, but really it, it's all sort of selfish on his end. Um, but at the same time, we can understand where she's coming from as well. And that choice that she has to make at the end of the film, which is, you know, is she going to turn her back on this or is she going to be a mother to this child? And she ultimately decides to do that. Um, which is, you know, again, very disturbing and very, uh, it it really cuts deep. Uh, I think especially, you know, people who have, uh, uh, who have children of their own and so forth, to be able to put themselves in that position and understand the psychological dynamics of that. It's it's a very, very layered film that has so many different ways that you can look at it, so many different ways you can interpret it. And as many times as I've seen it, um, every time I watch it, I'm still picking out little things that I've never noticed before.
0: I'm going to go back to what you were saying, how some people say they they saw the baby and they, they did the flash with... Um... Satan or you know during the rape scene and I agree with you that the baby's not shown because if you look at that face there's no way that if she would have saw that face as the baby's face that all she'd be commenting on is his eyes you know because it's oh yeah yeah (laughs) you know it's like because it it has horns it's got the it's red I mean it's 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 a lot more than just I mean I don't think the first thing you'd be saying is his eyes his eyes I mean Mm -hmm. She could be no. That focused on a certain details. Her character's always been focused on very tiny details. But now I would be shocked. So I agree with you. Well, oh, yeah, it's it's, it's goes they, back they to, they the cut to the
1: other. They cut back to the other cultists too, like Patchy Kelly's, you know, Ruth and they say, "Well, look at his hands, look at his feet," you know. So we're assuming that must have you know little cloven hooks and <laughs> pointed tail and stuff like that, which would have been completely ludicrous. I mean, you'd laugh it off the screen. And I think one of the reasons this movie holds up as well as it does is that there are no special effects to really date it. You know, as as great a film as The Exorcist is, and The Exorcist was incredibly um, state-of-the-art for 1973, it's still 1973. Inevitably, there are certain things in the movie that, by contemporary standards, look a little phony. Um, It's still a great film. But. In that level, it stated. What Plansky did that was so smart in this film was basically say, I'm going to avoid special effects as much as possible and, uh, crucially, not show the baby because um, to have shown that would have been uh, a complete disaster. I think it would have totally undercut the film and uh, reduced it down to the level of a parody.
0: Oh, I agree. There's no way... you. Can... I think our mental image of whatever the baby was going to look like is thing that, that, yes. that scares people the most sometimes it's like when they cut away from somebody just about to be killed and they'll cut away in a movie and then your imagination fills in the gaps i know some people hate that they want to see the gore and whatever and there's yeah. other people like myself that whatever i imagine is going to be way worse than whatever they show because if they show it you're going to be like oh they didn't show enough or it wasn't this or it wasn't there's always going to be that, yeah. that 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 you can never please everybody
1: no, there's no pleasing everybody. I mean, I, I take it on a case-by-case basis. There's certainly very gory horror films that I love, um, and I do think it takes skill to pull things off well. You know, I look at, like, like Lucio Fulci did in his films, for example, and I'm always impressed by the sheer sort of kutzpah and, uh, you know, it, astonishing uh, kind of ingenuity to be able to put some of those images on screen. I mean, that's not easy to do. Um, but by the same token, there are times when understatement and subtlety is, is very much appreciated, too. I mean, people talk about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, you know, who are convinced the same thing with Ursula David. They're convinced that they've seen so much more than what they really do. Um, it's actually not a bloody film at all. I mean, you'd be surprised if you go back and look at it. Uh, it's really not gory at all. It's, it's all sort of implied. It's the intensity that's, that's very disturbing. And so, Rosemary's Baby. You could show this movie. I think you could show this movie on TV uncut these days. There's a little bit of nudity. Um, there are some, for the time, you know, some, some shocking language, you know, some four letter words thrown out, uh, which you know, when this film was shot in late 1967, um, that was kind of a new thing. You know, censorship was starting to relax and all that. But it's not. It's not a movie that would really need to be cut. There's only one scene in it with blood, uh, which is a uh, a scene that's presented as a suicide, although, uh, you know, there's some implication that there was something far more sinister that took place there as well. But then, again, depending on how you want to interpret it.
0: Oh yes. And, and, and that, that was the, what I was talking about earlier when I said about there, there's, there's virtually no gore except for that one scene and that's about it, you know? And, um, I mean, we, I mean, this movie is just so well done and the, one thing I want to go back to, which we talked a tiny bit about, is the music. Oh yeah, it sets it up with the opening credits and um, with uh, all the way through the movie. And it's just when when the when you have the soundtrack or the movie and the, the scenery going so well together. So when the cinematography and the music are going hand in hand with the acting, when it's you know when it's going on with that part, it really pulls you into the movie. But the music when it's showing the opening shots, just builds you right, it sends you right into the movie and gets you ready for that expectation. So it's it's it's, it's yeah. so well done with yeah, the, the lullaby.
1: The score, the score um, was by Christoph Kameda, uh, who they they sort of Americanized his name for this film, Christopher Kameda, who is was an old friend of Polanski's. They had been working together for you know pretty much since the beginning of Polanski's uh, kind of uh, career when he was in film school. He was a great jazz musician, and Polanski loved uh, jazz music, so uh, Kameda had scored, um, all of his previous films with the exception of Repulsion, where, um, he used Tico Hamilton. But other than that, his other films had been scored by Kameda. And, uh, indeed, he would have continued using Kameda on subsequent films. Unfortunately, Kameda died. Um, it was one of a couple of terribly tragic things that the folk landscape not long after this film, uh, Kameda had a, uh, an accident, um, and, uh, uh, ended up dying, uh, quite young. Um, but he was a tremendously, tremendously talented composer. Um, his score for this is, uh, you know, it's a masterpiece in itself. The central theme, the lullaby, is actually performed by Mia Farrow herself. She, she does la 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 over the, you know, the opening credits and the end credits. Um, but the whole score is just really amazing. It was um, it was initially released on CD in a, a very incomplete version. I was very irritated when I got it because. It was missing a lot of pieces of music that I really liked. Uh, but fortunately they did go back a few years back to do an expanded two disk version as all the music. So, um not sure if it's film print or not, but it, it should be available for people who'd be, uh, interested to, to have it. Um, and you know, as far as cinematography is concerned, William Fraker, film, uh, a terrific cinematographer. I mean, clients always, you know, used top knock cinematographers because, uh, he's very, well aware of how important it is to have a, a good cinematographer on any film. So he's worked with some of the very best. And uh, he and Breaker work together very, very well. Um, there's a great shot in the film that Breaker talked about in a documentary about cinematography, uh, where Minnie calls uh, Dr. zapperstein on the phone to talk to her about you know seeing Rosemary. And uh, it re- it's shot from Rosemary's point of view. So you're looking into the bedroom, it's through a door frame and Minnie's on the phone and it's it's off center. It's deliberately off center. And what had happened was Breaker set it up so that you'd be able to see Minnie on the phone in a fairly standard static shot. And Polanski moved the camera over slightly and Breaker was confused by this. He said, Trust me, you'll see what I mean And when they watched the rushes he noticed that everybody to a person in that room sort of uh leaned over in their chair trying to see around the door frame so it was actually a very clever touch uh, lots of great touches like that throughout the film I mean uh, another great moment is when um, they, they have their first meeting with the cast uh and she's in the kitchen with Minnie doing dishes and when they go back into the living room and Guy and Roman are sitting on the couch the look of just sheer intensity and horror on Guy's face is a very subtle. It's all played in a wide shot. It's something you wouldn't notice the first time around, but when you've seen the film a couple of times you realize, oh, that's when he first suggested this idea to him. He's horrified. But he's also intrigued. So it's a nice little subtle touch. Again, something really chilling that uh definitely rewards multiple viewers.
0: Also what I like about that scene is when it shifts from both of them doing the dishes in the kitchen. Oh you see the doorway and all you see is the, the smoke. The smoke. And, and, and you and you and you realize and you don't hear what they're saying you just see the smoke coming around like so you know they're doing some kind of discussion or they're both there and then it brings it in mm-hmm. and uh, and then you realize oh they've been there for a while because of all the dishes that had been done so it's like you don't know yeah. and i like I like that also I thought that was so how how the shots were done with the using again the building so well the the, the set so well
1: yeah yeah again it's it's Great details, and Polanski's always been known as a very um, uh, very particular director in the sense he's very, very specific about what he wants from his actors. He's very specific about what he wants in the frame. Um, there's nothing there that's done accidentally. You know, it, it doesn't matter if it's a big film like Tess or a little sort of four-character piece in an apartment like Carnage. Every little bit of information that's there is there for a reason, and it, it's all very specific. Um, I should mention, too, I alluded to this before, of course, you know, John Cassavetes, in addition to being a, an actor, as well as the director himself. And Cassavetes was well known for making these films that felt wildly improvised. Um, they were not actually completely improvised. Um, I interviewed Sandy King, who is John Carpenter's wife. And uh, prior to you know becoming involved with Carpenter, um, she had been working as a script supervisor for, a number of years, and uh, she had worked with Cassavetes on a film. I think it might have been killing of a Chinese bookie. And um, I asked her about that, and I said, you know, a script supervisor on a, on a Cassavetes film, that had to have been interesting, and she said, well, yeah, it was, but, you know, everybody thinks that everybody just kind of made it up as they went along, and what happened was Cassavetes liked to have these really detailed rehearsals, where he pretty much told people, do whatever you want to do, and if we like it, we're going to incorporate it into the script. So it was ad-libbed in the sense that it was, you know, kind of added in by the actors as they were, as they were uh, rehearsing. Uh, but, you know, when the time came to shoot a film, you have to have a certain structure. You can't just make it up as you're going along. That would be madness. So there's kind of a misconception about that. Uh, the movies just feel very kind of spontaneous. Um, as an actor, he liked to improvise. He liked to ad lib. He liked to feel kind of free to kind of get up and, and go and do what he wanted to do and Polanski kind of sat on him and, and said, no, this is what I want. And he would show him he, because Polanski himself is an excellent actor. Um, he's starred in a couple of his own films. He's acting in films for other directors. He's done a lot of stage work as well. He played, um, uh, uh, he was leading in Amadeus uh, on stage, you know, in the eighties. Um, he did, he wasn't in the film for perhaps obvious reasons, but he was on stage for the, uh, in Europe. And, um, you know, he's a very fine actor himself, and he's very specific about what he wants. And Casavetti's found that very difficult. Um, so they they did not um, necessarily get along very well. As a matter of fact, after a certain point, there was a story that uh, at one point they were getting towards the end of the film. And I think it was actually the last scene, um, you know, where everybody's gathered and, and Rosemary comes in. And, and Cassavetes is being kind of critical of some of the stuff that Polanski was doing. And uh, at one point, Polanski just shouted at him, shut up. And so they, they came to loggerheads, and it was only Ruth Gordon who, who kind of, you know, cut the tension by saying, okay, guys, we've got a movie to make. And they just kind of got over it and, and carried on. But it has to be said, Plansky's always been very uh, complimentary towards Cassavetes in interviews. And uh, Cassavetes seemed to have respect for Plansky as an artist. He seemed to understand his talent. He just didn't think much of Rosemary's Baby as a piece of material. He thought of it as you know, kind of trashy. Uh, but he did recognize his talent. So it's a good example of two people with radically different methods. You know, somebody who's very particular and precise versus somebody who, who's you know more spontaneous and prone to ad-libbing working together. But uh, again, I, I don't think the results um, are compromised because I, I think it's an absolutely wonderful performance that again, doesn't tend to get the attention and praise that it really deserves. Well,
0: oh, I think, I think you're right on. And, you know because his everybody like we said everybody's performance is great and his performance is, is really good and i know from talking to different actors and in interviews and stuff everybody has a different approach to how they go about doing the material and um, i've also interviewed some directors and some directors are very as like john john cassavetes is you know with are working with the actors when they're doing the rehearsals and getting the things ironed down and that way it gets that contribution that way where other directors have that vision in their mind of how they want things to go. And, yeah. and they like, they like to, They like to keep it in that direction and keep it in that focus. Mm-hmm. And I'm not we're not saying which one's better or worse. It's just two different methods of doing it. And there's a multiple yeah. methods of doing things and you still get great work out of it. It's just a matter of being able to, as a director, mesh the people that you have, working on right. a project with you to get the best performances that you can out of them. And, and sometimes yep. it can make it where the actor is not happy with it. And um, like Vincent Price was not happy in Witchfinder general because he was being no. um, hamstrung to by the director for his performance. And so it's, but it's a great performance. So it's uh, there's, so there's a lot of ways to look at things.
1: Yeah. I mean, directors, if there's a funny sort of weird fixation these days on whether directors are nice. Uh, you know, people, people kind of, you know, want to sort of lash out at directors, even if they're long dead, if they were known for being unpleasant on sets and if they were known for being bullies and temperamental and, and volatile and everything else. And my hope, my attitude has always been, what well, does, you know, to me it doesn't really matter. It just matters what's on, on screen. I mean, you know, a lot of directors were not necessarily nice people. Um, you know, they were—they were—they uh, were quite difficult to work with. I've never heard anything to indicate Polanski was, uh, or indeed is—he's still making films—a um, unpleasant man to work with. Just he was very particular and very meticulous, and he has a very clear idea of what he wants. But not somebody known for like yelling and screaming and shouting and everything else. There's this kind of weird thing these days where people are really concerned about that. They're really worried about that. You know, they, they, they just kind of fixate on, on strange things like that. You know, Polanski um, explained it, that, you know, making a film is very high pressure and there's a lot of money online and a lot of, uh, you know, difficulties with time and everything else. And and this is a film that went over schedule by about 30 days, by the way. It was um, I scheduled for 55 days and ended up going to at least 85. Um, and it went about forty grand over budget, which is nothing today, but forty grand in nineteen sixty-seven was was a little bit more. Uh, although it all paid off in dividends, the movie made a ton of money. It was enormously successful. Um, but you know, because he was uh, very particular and very meticulous and so forth, um, he was running behind uh, early on. And told story about being on the lot. Uh, at Paramount, after a meeting with uh, the, the higher ups at Paramount, and he ran into Otto Preminger. Now, Otto Preminger is a man who's known for being a sadist on set. Uh, yelled, screamed. I mean, really, really nasty man on set. Nice man off, apparently. Not so nice on set. Anyway, uh, Preminger knew who Plansky was. He liked him. He liked his work. And he said, uh, what's, what's wrong? He looked so gloomy. And Plansky said, well, they're upset with me for going over schedule. I don't know what I'm going to do. And Preminger said, well, um, you know, do they like your rushes? Said, oh, yeah, they love them. He said, don't worry about it. They're not going to fire you if they like your work, even if you're running over. Nobody cares about that. Um, but landscape just said it was kind of like, you know, it's like imagining a surgery where the doctor says, please, nurse, would you be so kind as to hand me the scalpel? It, they don't do that because it's, you know, time and pressure and everything is on, so it tends to be very curt and to the point. And it's just similar to that making a film. It's not always possible to have the social nicety. Um, and so, you know, his, his approach may have seemed dictatorial to somebody like Cassavetes, Um, but by the end of, the, you know, at the end of the day, the methodology to me doesn't really matter so much if you're somebody like Stanley Kubrick who shoots, you know, a hundred takes of somebody closing a door. Uh, William Wyler was like that as well. Or you're somebody like a, uh, um, you know, a Clint Eastwood or, or, uh, William Freakin who will get it in one take if they can doesn't really matter. What matters is what's up on the screen. And, and the thing that makes Rosemary's Baby such a great film uh, ultimately is, Rose, is uh, Roman Polanski because he's the one who had this tremendous insight into the material and knew how to realize it in a way that is uh, wonderfully rich and layered and has all these different things. He's very faithful to the book, but at the same token, it's bringing a lot of his own personality to it. So you get this kind of impish sense of humor and sort of dark comedy that comes throughout. Uh, but it's also beautifully staged and realized. I mean, nobody could have done better by this material.
0: Oh, I agree. And when you, when you brought up Clint Eastwood and his style of directing, it reminded me of an interview I did with Eli Craig, who's also a director, but he also was an actor at one time, and he was in Space Cowboys. And mm-hmm. Clint Eastwood directed it, and there was a, he played um, the, the younger version of. Um, one of the older actors. It's like when they're, they're filming (laughs) this one scene where they parachute down and he was supposed to like pull when he landed, he was supposed to pull this one thing. So his chute would go off, you know, like, like disengage from his body and um, say his dialogue. So he gets down, does the landing, gets up, says his line and everybody behind him in the camera, he says is pointing at behind him because there was also a windstorm that was coming and he got, he didn't take, he didn't pull the thing to cut off his chute. And so he got pulled in the desert, you know, a, a good distance away. Ended up being okay. They got him back, reset it up, and Clint came over to him and said, Kid, you got one more try. Don't fuck it up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> See, there you go. Some directors are are nasty SOBs, there's no question. I mean, uh, Fritz Lang was known for being uh, quite quite unpleasant. To work for, I mentioned Otto Prementer, and you know, there are various other, uh, stories we've talked about. James Whale, I mean, James Whale can be quite statistic at times. Um, and other directors are known for having a very kind of calm, relaxed, uh, attitude on set. John Carpenter's like, a known for yelling and screaming. Uh, he likes to create a nice, kind of homey, you know, happy atmosphere on set. Uh, but you know, as, as a director, uh, you know, first of all, Planetsky's body of work, uh, which is fairly prolific over a period of, what, about 60 years now, um, is remarkably consistent. Um, but uh, in terms of quality and in terms of, you know, you can always tell it's his movie, regardless whether, you know, it's an adaptation of a book or a play or an original concept he's come up with. It, it, you know, it's always built through his period sensibility. Um, but, you know, it's it's unfortunate on a certain level that Ian Gaspettys didn't, get along better because it did create some tensions that were unpleasant at times on set. But the overall impression I get from the other actors who participate in the film, especially Mia Farrow, Ruth Borden, and so forth, uh, was of a very happy time. Um, not all happy. I mean, Mia Farrow was going through a lot of difficulties at that time because she was supposed to do a movie with her husband, her then-husband, Frank Sinatra, called The Detective. Um, and because Blansky kept running behind, uh, Sinatra was, you know, getting really, really pissed off, and and said, um, you know, it's it's either Rosemary's Baby or me. You know, make your choice. And and she liked to stay with Rosemary's Baby. And he had uh, divorce papers served to her by his lawyer on the set. They were filming the scene of the party. And they had that uh, they had that party where all of her young friends come. Not not uh, Minnie and Roman and those people, but the, uh, you have to be under sixty to attend party. Uh, <laughs> And uh, she was just totally devastated, you know, she just dumped her like that. Um, you know, so that was an unpleasant aspect of that. That was disconnected from the film, just uh, something that, uh, you know, obviously she would remember and connect with this film because uh, it created a great deal of bad blood. The detective, by the way, came out, I believe, the same day as Rosemary's Baby. And although the detective did well enough at the box office, it didn't do nearly as well as Rosemary's Baby, which made her very happy.
0: Sometimes those that laugh last laugh best. <laughs> That's true. It's true. Oh, but I, I'm so happy that you picked this movie and I'm glad I got to revisit it. And I'm now I'm, I'm adding it to my list to purchase. Cause I, I don't own a copy of it. Now I want to own a copy because I want to read. Mm. I want to add it to like every so every couple of years or so, just stick it back in. Um, because now it's like, Oh, I want to see these different little things that are going up because there are certain things I know that Rosemary was pointing out. And some of them, a lot of them I was able to pick up very before she made her observation because it was very well done cinematography wise. And there's some of them I'm like, I did not notice until after Mm -hmm. she brought it up. And I did not go back to look at it. Then I was just like, you know, I'm going to get this down the road and I'm going to watch it then. And then I'll know to look for that scene where, um, when they go into that the apartment and the paintings were like moved or removed mm-hmm. and and now i'm gonna mm-hmm. now I'm going to examine that wall to see you know was that was that filmed, which I'm sure it was and was that so obvious you know and i'm and I bet it was but it just it just went right over your head when you're watching it for the first yeah. time yeah the
1: in the in the dream sequence, which is I think one of the all time great sequences in any film ever made uh it's it, most dream sequences aren't very good, in my opinion, because they usually do that thing where they make the screen all sort of warbly and they add color. You know, it's kind of like the Roger Corman dream sequences in the Poe films. It's always this kind of, you know, ridiculously stylized thing. Dreams aren't like that. Dreams are weird and disquieting in their own way because they have their own logic. They're very random. And that's what you get in this film. So one of the things I didn't pick up on until relatively recently is that uh, the Kennedys are involved in the dream sequence. Uh, we see, you know, somebody playing, is actually playing John F. Kennedy. Uh, I think it's supposed to be John, or maybe it's supposed to be Robert, but I think it's supposed to be John uh, as the captain of the ship who turns into Hudson at one point. Um, and uh, also somebody's supposed to be Jackie Onassis comes down the staircase as she's effectively being raped by Satan and is saying, I heard you're not feeling well or whatever. And, you know, all these little sort of weird details, but like, you know, when we see her walking towards the bed where she's going to be mated with the devil, you see this kind of fiery thing going on in the background, kind of flaming, uh, sort of building effect as she walks by. You realize later in the film when she gets into the apartment, uh, she breaks into that that doorway that's been blocked up by the previous tenant. That um, there's a painting that looks exactly like that uh, that she passes by, you know, or or. We see her point of view as she's being lifted, you know, effectively from her apartment into that room so that she can get to that apartment so that they can do what they're going to do. Um, you know, she's going underneath those shelves that she's papered. Um, little details like that that don't necessarily jump out. They just kind of, you know, they, they stand out more and more. And they're all the more impressive because this is a movie that was made in 67, released in 68. This is prior to home video. Most people don't go to see movies more than once in the theater. You know, there are people like me that if they really like something they'll go and see it multiple times. Most people don't do that. Uh, but that level of care and that level of attention to detail is just extraordinary. But that that whole dream sequence is just phenomenal. The the, the use of sound uh, and you know the, the the sound of the the uh, the alarm clock you know, as they're ticking on the sound. its just terrific. Uh, and that's something that. Very very few films managed to get right, I think it's that kind of dream imagery. this ones really
0: helps Oh, I definitely agree with you and um really, uh, do you have anything else to add you know about the movie Because I, I think i I've, I've run out of things where uh to talk about with it because i mean there's for me it it's been forty years since i uh, t- between viewers mm-hmm. for you, I think you've probably seen it i don't know I'm just guessing in the ballpark at least twenty times.
1: Uh, probably more than that, although I'm not sure. I mean, um, I first saw it as a kid. Um, I I seem to recall resisting seeing it for a while because I had this impression it was a soap opera. I don't know why I thought that. Um, then when I realized it's made by the guy that made the fearless Vampire Killers, who was, was one of my favorite films from the time I'm a child, I wanted to see it. I watched it and I, I didn't like it as a kid. It's 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 too subtle a movie for a kid. I mean, it's just I didn't get it. I didn't understand it. I thought it was slow and dull and I didn't care for it. But somehow, in my teenage years, it just clicked and it, it became a huge favorite of mine. I've seen it so many times. Um, you know, everything about the film just clicks. I think it is as perfect a film as I've ever seen. Uh, there's not one thing I would change in it. There's not one thing that I think, oh man, it's a shame that they couldn't have done that better. Every piece of casting, I mean, every actor in the film, uh, you know, we, we haven't really mentioned Ralph Bellamy or Maurice Evans yet as Hutch, but they're terrific. Everybody plays their role so well. Um, it's so well told, and it's, again, just so wonderfully detailed that uh, uh, it's the type of movie that just makes me so excited every time I watch it because I know not only am I going to be completely glued to it, but even though I've seen it 20, 30 times. 40 times for all I know. I really couldn't tell you. Um, I'm still going to pick up little things that I've never noticed before. And I did even, you know, yesterday. Those little things that hadn't really jumped out at me before. I kind of picked up on it. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't. I don't remember noticing that before. Um, there aren't many films that are like that. So uh, I have not seen, and I, I always i am very cautious about using, you know, those kinds of greatest horror film ever made or worst horror film ever made because nobody's seen everything. It's kind of a dumb thing to say. But I've seen a considerable number of horror films and I've I've never seen one that's better than this one. So as far as I'm concerned, it's the greatest horror film I've ever seen. uh, and, And one of the greatest films I've ever seen altogether.
0: Oh, I agree. It's, it's definitely one of the, it's one of the better in both lists for me. I don't know if it's, I've never, I've never really sat down and tried to figure out like, what is the best, of the best for me like in certain genres or whatever um because as you said you're always introducing to something again or for the first time and then you're like oh and now it's like it throws your whole um mind off it's like well that was i thought that was the best but now i'm not sure you know and, and that's the great thing about diving into um movie discussions like this with people that i come when we roll the die and then you pick a movie and it's like okay we'll go do Rosemary's baby or whatever, um, which I had seen before, but again, long, long time ago, very happy to revisit it. And then there's other times where people are picking movies that I've never seen before. I remember uh, the first time I saw Suspirium, um, Mm -hmm. I was teaching CPR first aid classes for the red cross at the time. And I'm still Red cross instructor, but I was working for him. And one of the icebreakers I used to do when people were waiting for people to show up is like, Oh, what's one of your favorite movies? You know, as we're talking and this one young guy goes Suspirium, and then he explained yeah. why, and I was like, okay. So I, so I put a thing, so Netflix DVD, and this is this is like 20 years ago or whatever. Sent, you know. I got Suspiria, I put it in, and so my first time was watching it then, and I was just like, wow, he was so right. The cinematography and the, and the, and the colors and everything, everything that he said, it just was just like blew your mind, uh, you know, seeing it for that first time. And, and that's why I always liked it It was because if somebody really likes a film, there's usually going to be something good about it. You know, they're not going to say, this is one of my favorite films. And, it, and it'd be a total bomb, you know, for somebody else watching it. You might not like it as much as they do, but you can see why they like it for different reasons um, and that kind of thing. And, and, you know, everybody's tastes are different, but it's, it's doubtful that somebody's going to say they're, that's their one of their greatest films ever. And you're going to think of it as a total dung heap.
1: Hmm. Yeah, it's uh, usually that's the case I mean, there, there there are films that are really well regarded That I'm just totally, you know, at a loss about I don't really, but usually, even something like um, I, I, You know, I'll, I'll, I'll throw it out there Gone with the Wind is a movie that I'm not, you know I'm not a fan of personally But I can understand it Because I can see the size of it, the scope of it I can understand why people like it as much as they do story doesn't do much for me i am I'm, I'm not particularly you know invested in those characters but i can at least understand it so usually that is the case you know, even if it's something i'm not nuts about i can usually say well yeah i can i can at least understand why somebody likes it as much as that um, now i talk to people about rosemary's Baby who say wow i didn't really think that much of it and it's okay but it's not as good as you know the exorcist or the omen or whatever and yeah, you know everybody's Everybody's entitled to their opinion, but, um, you know, somebody would, would tell me. I'll tell you a story. Um, I was dating a girl a number of years back, and um, I showed, I'm i going to show you Rosemary Chase. And And um, so I brought it over, and we're watching it. And as you know, it's a slow film. It takes its time. It's, it's building. But this girl's my age. I'm thinking, yes, it's probably just the movies, you know, that aren't you know super fast. She'll be fine with it. We got into the uh, the dream sequence, which again is just a scene that I think is so fantastically creepy and disturbing, and just you know exhilarating because it's so brilliant. Um, she turned to me and said, "This is one of the worst movies I have ever seen in my life," <laughs> and I was totally crestfallen. It's that weird thing that you have where you love something so much and you just can't understand how could you, how could you? And I remember saying, "Well, okay, we can turn it off if you like this. If you don't like this, I'm telling you." And she said, "No." We're, we'll finish it. She did end up like um, once she thought it started getting cooking. She said, "You know, I just they should have cut out that first hour. Nothing happened in that first hour." She said, yeah, hours that's important. You got to have the build-up. Um, so it is possible sometimes to have that that very uh, uh, profoundly upsetting experience of watching something you love with somebody who just doesn't quite uh, understand it uh, or or can't quite uh, let's say can't quite." relate to it the same way
0: that you do but that you know that's life yes it is and you know and there's like we like we said starting off this when we talked about you know some of your facebook posts and people getting upset you never get upset with it i never get upset with it. i'm just like eh, you know you're entitled to your own opinion you know this is mine but uh we just sometimes get upset when somebody says your, your opinion is so wrong it's like no 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 your, your opinion is fine oh. with the movie it's just We're looking at it from different perspectives and um, my perspective is I enjoy it and your perspective is you don't enjoy it or vice versa. And it's just, you know, it is what it is. I don't,
1: I don't get upset if people don't agree with me. I, I do get irritated if people are rude, um, if I feel they're being condescending, um, you know, things like that. Or, um, but you know, other than that, if it just boils down, if you ask somebody, why didn't you like this movie? And they say it's boring. I have nothing to say because I can't argue that point. If you found it boring, then there's nothing I can tell you that's going to make you change your mind. That's your take. Okay. But if you start getting into other things, you know, and you start, you know, if there's something that I can come up with a counter argument to, then it's possible to debate it. Um, you know, usually anymore, and, and like I said, I'm sort of trying to back off a bit more and more and not be on so much and you know, spare myself the aggravation. But, one of the things that I try to avoid anymore is if somebody posts that they like something, I don't want to go on there and say, I don't like it, because there's no point to that, uh, unless they're asking for opinions. That's different. If you're asking me, you know, I'm, I just watched this. I really liked it. What's everybody else think? Okay, you know, that's fair enough. It's the same thing on my own wall. I, I tend to get irritated. Sometimes I'll post something and I'll say, oh, I love this movie. And somebody will say, oh, it's terrible. I didn't ask you. Uh, that's not... You you didn't need to do that. I I wasn't really asking for your opinion. Um, So I try to avoid that, you know, and let people enjoy what they want to enjoy, unless they are specifically asking for something. But again, uh, you know, there's always something. I mean, it it doesn't matter what the film is. I mean, if you would ask me, what do I think is the worst film ever made? And I gave you an answer. You're going to get people that are going to come back and say, I love that movie. And that's just the way it is.
0: Oh well, I know, I know. It's it's it's, and I'm fine with that myself. I think you and I are both that way. As long as people don't start going to, to, to insults and derogatory mm-hmm. stuff, it's just a matter of, you know, to, to explain yourself coherently, and then you know, okay, I understand where you're coming from. I'm not going to lose any sleep. Let's put it that way. You know, somebody has a you know, no, different opinion. There's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of
1: films I love that I get it. I understand. You know, a lot of the Italian genre stuff that I love, for example, that's not for everybody, and I get it. I I understand it. Um, if somebody comes on and says, you know, Citizen King sucks, uh, all right. I want you to explain that. I want you to tell me what it is you don't like about this movie. And uh, I, I'm not going to agree with you, but at least I can try to understand you. Um, I think sometimes people just like to be provocative too, and I think sometimes that's that's pretty much what they're trying to do. It's just a matter of, well, you know, I I just want to be different, and, and I think there's a lot of that that goes on too.
0: Oh, I agree. And I also agree that this is a, a great movie and um ecstatic that you picked it and um, and that kind of stuff. And I want to also thank you for helping me out with the James Whale retrospective series and um, and, and with your contributions there. I mean, you, you, you've just been a wealth of knowledge with film and things. And like we said, whether people agree with you or disagree with you or me or whatever – it's it's just to have that discussion and let people find these films that they don't always see. Rosemary Baby, of course, is a film that a lot of people have seen, but a lot of people still have not seen. I mean, it's just it's just the way it is. You know, just because it's popular for a certain group doesn't mean every group has seen it.
1: Well, I mean, it was a big box office hit. It was a sort of pop culture phenomenon in 1968, but 1968 was a long time ago, um, and you know, films and filmmakers and so forth. Uh, only remain alive as long as people talk about them. So if we stop talking about them and uh, stop writing about them, then they will eventually disappear because people won't be watching them, they won't be talking about them. Um, so it's always good. You know, even if it's something that's a quote-unquote well-known movie, I, I would be willing to bet there's quite a few people who probably haven't seen her. Maybe, maybe, I don't know, I, I don't know how persuasive I am, but maybe some people who've watched it didn't think that much of it might say, well, maybe I want to go back and look at it again now. And if they do, I hope they find something uh, uh, of what we've said to be of use and maybe potentially uh, change their mind a little bit. You never know.
0: Yep, and if anybody has Paramount+, Plus, it's currently on there. So, I mean, you, if you have Paramount+, Plus, you can watch it. You're already paying for it. It's right there mm-hmm. in the queue. So just put it on and you can watch it. Um, if you have other streaming services, just pay attention because it's like always these things fluctuate every so often and, and they end up on another service and another service, or I don't know, go call me crazy cause I like physical media. You can go buy it.
1: <laughs> yeah. I have the, uh, criterion Blu-ray, which is out of print now. Um, but there is, I think a paramount Blu-ray that probably doesn't have the actors and stuff, but at least you'll have the movie. So, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I always, I always prefer to own a copy. That's just the way I am. Uh, when it comes to books and movies, I'd much rather own a copy than uh, rely on some kind of a streaming uh, device, which always strikes me as very sort of nebulous. You never know uh, if they're going to, you know, just because you pay money to download something uh, and it's available in, on the cloud or whatever, you know, it doesn't mean that it's not going to get pulled at some point. So uh, physical copies are nice for that reason.
0: Exactly. And, um, and speaking of books, um, why don't you plug one of your books? Pick a, pick a book of yours that you want to talk about.
1: Oh uh, boy. I mean, there's, uh, there's a bunch of them. Uh, I suppose they'll talk a little bit about, uh, assault on the system, the nonconformist cinema of John Carpenter, which, uh, is one of my more recent uh, uh, books, um, examining obviously John Carpenter's work in detail and, uh, um, uh, it's a book that I wanted to write for a number of years uh, for a variety of reasons. Just never got around to it. And I'm very, very relieved that I was able to do that uh, with with him. Um, you know, he's a director, writer, composer that I have tremendous uh, respect for. And, uh, got to interview him for the book. And I found him to be quite delightful to deal with. He was very kind and supportive, and uh, I hope I did some justice to his work. So that is certainly available, uh, along with all the other ones, if you just look on Amazon.
0: And I love John Carpenter film. So, I mean, for for listeners, I mean, if you love John Carpenter, I mean, go for it. You know, you're, you're talking, you're going to be getting, hearing words from the man, you know, that Troy interviewed, getting deep down analysis of the different movies. I mean, it's try it, go for it. And Troy, thank you so much for joining me. And I know we'll be doing this again down the road and everything like that, but I'm glad you picked Rosemary's baby. And, uh, and I hope you enjoyed, hope you had a good time.
1: Yes, I did. Very much so. And I hope people found it interesting.
0: I think they will. And listeners, um, stay tuned for the next episode, which we'll talk about in the, a little bit. I hope everybody enjoyed that discussion. Our next episode is going to be an interview. Um, it's either going to be Mimi Gibson or um, Jeannie Russell or Stanley Livingston. I haven't decided which one next which one is going to be next. So it's going to be one of those three. Um, Hope everybody has a great day. And again, feel free to leave us feedback at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com or on our Facebook page. I hope everybody has a good day. And I want to thank Troy again for letting me talk to him about Rosemary's baby and exit the show. We're going to listen to a little bit about, we're going to listen to a little part from Rosemary's baby where Rosemary discovers what the baby looks like. Rosemary, go back to bed, you know. You're not supposed to be up and around. Is the mother... Rosemary... Shut up. Shut up,
1: you're in Dubrovnik. I don't hear you. He has his father's eyes. What are you talking about? Guy's eyes are normal. What have you done to him, you maniac? Satan is his father, not Guy. He came up from hell and begat a son of mortal woman. Hail Satan! Hail Satan! Satan is his father and his name is Adrian. He shall overthrow the mighty and lay waste their temples. He shall redeem the despised and wreak vengeance in the name of the burned and the
0: tortured. Hail, Adrian! Hail, Adrian! Hail, Satan! you out of all the world, out of all the women in the whole world. He chose you. He arranged things, because he wanted you to be the mother of his only living son. His power is stronger than stronger. His might shall last longer than longer. Yes, Satan!
1: No! It can't be! No! Look at his hands. And his feet. Oh, God!
0: God is dead. Hey, Satan lives.